I'm Rebecca Rothstein, and along with my co-host, Leanne Daly, we'd like to welcome you to Say It Forward. Each week, we'll be doing one of my favorite things to do, and that's interviewing interesting people with out-of-the-ordinary life stories. They're all people who took a different path in life. Some never imagined the heights they would achieve, and others, well, they turned their childhood dreams into reality. Sitting in with Leanne and I today is one of our executive producers, Kim Garner. So let's begin. Today our interview is with David Landsberg, who has sadly passed away since this episode was recorded. David was one of those rare comedic minds who worked as an actor, screenwriter, and producer. He appeared opposite Don Rickles on the comedy TV series CPO Sharky and wrote and produced episodes of the CBS sitcom Cosby. He also wrote and or produced episodes of Blossom, Star Trek, The Next Generation, Herman's Head, Fantasy Island, The New Love Boat, The John Larroquette Show, and co-created a CBS sitcom called Daddy's Girls that starred Dudley Moore, Harvey Firestein, and Carrie Russell. On the big screen, the Brooklyn native was seen in Coming Attraction with Bill Murray, In Love at First Bite with George Hamilton, Skate Town USA with Patrick Swayze, The Jerk with Steve Martin, and Shoot the Moon starring Albert Finney and Diane Keaton. He and Lauren Dreyfus, older brother of Oscar-winning actor Richard Dreyfus, co-wrote and co-starred in the hilarious comedy Detective School Dropouts. So sit back as we rewind to the beginning and say it forward with this one-of-a-kind funny man and sadly now the late David Landsberg. Let's go back to your early life. Sure. You grew up in Brooklyn. I grew up in Brooklyn until I was about 13 and then we moved to Long Island. So you were a baby boomer. You were one of the first Uh, baby boomers. No computers, no iPhones. No nothing. I mean, in the days where you had a black and white TV set in your living room. If you had a TV. I was born in 44, so I was actually a war baby. And uh, I still have my ration coupons for meat and stuff. I still have my father's oh. ration coupons. I guess I'm 73 years old, and I talk to young people, and they go, really? <laughs> we had three families on our phone. Oh, wow. Yeah, three yeah. families, yeah. not three line. people. Yeah, party lines. So you get on there. Maybe I'd go, oh, my God. Mr. DeGuano, please get off the phone. Get <laughs> off the phone. Hmm. What did you do in those days? What was your, your um, you know, playing on the street moments like? What was going on? We lived in a building with about 110 families, and there's a little courtyard, and every day, hundreds of kids would come pouring down, and we'd all be in the courtyard. We learned how to play 15 games with a rubber ball. <laughs> yeah. 15 games you could play. Box ball, stoop ball, punch ball, kick ball, you name the ball, stick ball, you name it. You could play with a ball, and that's all we had. That's what kids did. There was no television, no internet, no iPhones. And I learned. You had to talk to each other. Talk. You had to fight. You had to compete. Everything was competition. Everything was gambling. That's why Brooklyn kids, whether they're Italian or Jewish or Irish, they're good gamblers, because that's what you did. You pitched pennies. You bet on everything. Those sports cards, baseball cards, you flip. Everything was a gamble. And I think we learned that from Hanukkah, because at Hanukkah, all the other, all the, all the, all the Gentile kids are getting bikes and presents and things, and I get, a, I get a handful of pennies. <laughs> we were allowed to put our hand in, but I get a handful of pennies, and then by the end of the evening, my brother had won them all in dreidel, and I was broke. So I lost it. Uh, I lost everything, and uh, all I had left was a chocolate candy. <laughs> 
And then your mom would yell out the window and call yeah. you in for dinner? She would, fourth floor, we lived on a fourth floor walk up. She, David, she made three syllables. David! <laughs> <laughs> David! And everybody goes, you know, your mother's calling you, David. <laughs> Are you an only child? No, I have an older brother who's two two years older. Than what was his name? Is Joey. His name? Joey. Joey, like that. Joey. <laughs> and he's still my dearest friend. That's funny. He's That's so funny. But growing up in Brooklyn, you know the uh, Sopranos, the guy with the stripe in his head, uh, Paulie. Paulie. Yeah. yeah, I grew up with him and his brothers. There was uh, he was Tony Sirico. He was the oldest. Then there was Carmine Sirico, his brother, who beat me up, and Junior Sirico, who beat my brother up. <laughs> it's a, it's kind of a coming of age <laughs> kind of thing in Brooklyn. The early part of your life, how did it help you, or did it have any impact on your career path? The greatest word I ever heard was no. No, you can't. No, you won't. Nope, sorry, not you. When I moved to Massapequa, again, I was 13, and the whole school, it was, I would say it was 50% Italian, 30% Jewish, and 20% Irish. So now I was really in the mix of competition with all these kids. I learned immediately that I, you can't do everything you want to. That when they say, you can be anything you want. No, <laughs> no, you can't. So I'm two feet tall. Just for the audience, I'm only five foot. I say I'm five foot three, but I'm really five foot two. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to be in the five foot two category. I figured five foot so three, that you, sounds better. You put stacks on your heel on your shoes, that'll solve that problem. That'll bring me up to five, three and a half. <laughs> but I can't I can't play basketball. I mean I can shoot the ball. I'm a good little athlete, but I can't play basketball. I can't play uh, football. I'll be killed. I weigh a hundred right now I weigh hundred and twenty nine pounds. <laughs> I weigh as much as somebody's helmet. And so I can't do it. So what happens? I could be frustrated and try. I remember Jack DeLuca taught me in Long Island. I wanted to play baseball. So I went out for the team and Jack DeLuca threw the ball to me and I caught the ball. And I thought he broke my hand. He threw that ball so, <laughs> so hard. hard. And I realized, oh, he can play baseball. Mm. I can. Mm -hmm. So now I could do a couple of things. I could go off and I could be miserable. I could keep trying. Or I could find something I'm good at. So I became New York State second place champion. New York State high school. Second place rings in high bar. So I took whatever it was that the universe gave me that I thought was a curse. And I made it into something that made me a champion. New York State high school. Second place. I missed first place rings by maybe a tenth of a point. That's big. I went to the Olympic trials um, when I was a senior. So I don't know, 1962, was that when it was? I went in West Point. And we worked out with the American and the Russian Olympic team. Fascinating. And I realized, oh, I don't think I'm going to be an Olympic champion. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but I was okay. Did you always have humor? Yeah. You had to. Yeah. I mean... You live in one bedroom. It's a great leveler, humor. And the more horrible something is, the funnier it is. Find something really horrible. It'll be the funniest thing in the world. It's a great skill. 
you know, making people laugh. And and it and helps you. Great it helps your, 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 your soul. So let's go back, if I may, to your Army experience. Okay. This is for the audience to, to really learn something. I went to NASA Community College. So I graduated a community college. I then went to Hofstra for a year and flunked out. I mean, flunked out. <laughs> I was partying and joined a fraternity <laughs> and had a girls girlfriend. In the <laughs> and my father said, David, there's a war going on. You better be careful. You better study. And I said, la, da, 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 da. <laughs> and I was drafted in 1966. My father did nothing to stop it. My father did nothing to help me get out. My father did nothing to encourage anything other than well, this is your this is your position that you put yourself in. So, good luck. There probably wasn't anything he could have done to help you anyway. Well, a lot of people would, you know, getting letters from that. My father was nobody. I mean, right. <laughs> we, we didn't have anything. But <clears throat> some people would say, "Well, why don't you try this? Or why don't you do this? Or why don't you go to Canada?" My father said nothing, and I learned from the army. It was the greatest and the worst experience of my life. I'm very proud of what I did. Not because I was a hero, because I wasn't. Because when Ted happened, and they all of a sudden guns were going, and I realized I was communications. So I wasn't necessarily out in the mud, but I always pulled bunker duty, guard duty. But you were in Vietnam. I was in Vietnam. I walked in the jungle in the middle of the night. Me, little tiny Landsberg with a helmet and a gun walking through the jungle on the jungle trail. I did jungle trail thing. And I always thought, I said to the... Captain, I said, Captain, what if something happens to me? He says, well, then you're not coming back to this base now, are you? Very sympathetic. Thank you. <laughs> that's, <laughs> yeah. that's the kind of encouragement I needed. Thank you, Captain. How did you get the communications gig there? Like, how did you differentiate yourself? I was, <laughs> when I was drafted, I had a sergeant, Sergeant Gutierrez. And again, I'm tiny. But I, you know, I did what I had to do, and I, I never shirked. And uh, when they sent put us up for, um, you know, where we were going to go, I was put in the infantry. And Sergeant Katira saw me, and he went, "Landsberg, what are you doing over there?" I said, "I'm in the infantry, Sergeant." He says, "No, no, no." And he turned and went, "Not him. He'll be dead in an hour." And I, I didn't disagree with him. And he says, "Landsberg, get out. Come here. Stand here." And he, uh, he got me into communications. Or where you hear me, waste rider, waste rider, this is waste rider, four, waste, that thing. I got a top secret clearance when I got to Vietnam. They put me in a little thing. I was attached to the 5th Special Forces, 173rd Airborne. Now, thank God I didn't have to go out with them, but I dealt with them a lot. And when I came back, guess where they put me? The Pentagon. I was in the most secure place in the country, probably the world, the most secure place. And I worked in that Top secret, I went in places generals couldn't go in. Still in the Army. Yeah, still in the Army. I was in Washington now. But now you now. were back at your right. So Washington back now, and what I did was I decided I'm going back to college. I was married now, and I went back to college. I'm now 24 years old. So that's when you went to Maryland? Yeah, University I went to Maryland? University of Maryland. And this time I studied. This time I knew I didn't want anyone yelling in my face again. What were you studying when you were at University Marketing, of Maryland? Marketing, business. That kind of stuff. I didn't think I was going to be an actor. I just wanted to get a job and live my life where no one was yelling at me or shooting at me. Was that the beginning of your uh, structuring what your career was going to look like kind of indirectly? Well, I got a job at J. Walter Thompson 
it was 1970, a bad time for, for work. So while everybody was writing resumes and putting them on the thing, I got this new invention. It was called a cassette recorder. Wow. So I put in a cassette and I recorded my resume. Hi, my name is David Landsberg. Blah, blah, blah. I was in the Army. I went to the University of Maryland. Da, 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 da. And I sent it out to everybody. I sent it to Braniff Airlines. I sent it to J. Walter Thompson. I sent them all over the place. And it's amazing the response I got. I got one of the top three jobs at J. Walter Thompson. That's a, that was like the beginning of, you were a, a precursor to today's you know, yeah. people texting and emailing. Well, everything and so. I've had to do in my life, I had to do differently because I'm tiny. And when you're tiny, you're not, I mean, it's the proven studies. People get more money. They're hired differently. Women. When have you ever saw, seen in Match.com, wanted, five foot two bald man? <laughs> Hi, I'm looking for someone short, bald, possibly with a heart condition. <laughs> I'm going on incontinent.com. At this point in my life, I'm trying to find I'm trying to find women who don't have more health issues than I do. You did things differently because you understood and honored that you were different. I was completely different. I was completely different. Why? Even now, my whole life has been looking up. Someone said, "We're going to a, a rock concert. We're going to we're going to go see Stephen Rothstein." Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm not. Why not? I'm not going in a goddamn crowd with all those tall people. I'll be looking at everybody's back. That's all I'm going to see. <laughs> so you got into advertising when you first got out of the um, worked on Eastman the Kodak. And then you get into the entertainment industry, into all these creative roles. So what was your inspiration for that? I couldn't stand advertising. <laughs> <laughs> I worked in media. I know media. I know what it is to buy radio time. I know what it is to... I used to buy all the stuff for Eastman Kodak on Family Circle, National Geographic, so I knew all that. But it it wasn't what I came home for. I mean, I made a promise that God, I said, God, get me the fuck out of here <laughs> and I'll try my best not to piss my life away. So when I got back, I thought, I'm just marking time. And I went to see a play, it was the Fantastics at the University of Maryland. And I'm watching, I thought... I can do this. This is horseshit. This is what we used to do in Brooklyn was act and play around. So I decided to become an actor. Wow. And I did. I went and I got a job in an amateur playhouse, community playhouse. Where were you? What I was in Maryland and uh, I got a job and then I kept going and I would do anything. I would, at Christmas time, I'd load up those little shot glass, you know, those little shots that you buy in the liquor store. And I'd go to every advertising agency, every production house, and I'd have a drink with them. I would- And made them laugh. And make them laugh, give them pictures, give them make up my resume, because I had no resume. <laughs> it yeah. sounds like your business and marketing background served you so well. Well, that's it. I mean, when I was doing radio commercials, I've done about a thousand radio commercials, written them, performed them. And the reason- I have a lot of stuff behind me, yeah. <laughs> even at a young age. I was married. I was married on Christmas leave in the Army. It was like a movie. Before we all got on a bus to go back home in Fort Gordon, Georgia, Gutierrez came up to me and says, Landsberg, you sing, right? I, I said, well, I, 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 he says, okay, you're singing tonight. <laughs> oh, Jesus, God, Sergeant, please, please. <laughs> Next thing I know, I'm standing in front of 
3,000 people, <laughs> generals, uh, all these people at Fort Gordon. And I'm, I'm standing up there and I, he says, uh, but get some guys. Get some. He says, we need a chorus too. Now I'm getting guys. You sing, you sing, you sing. <laughs> How about you? How about you? <laughs> I had an organizing. <laughs> Silent night, shepherds quake at the sign. And I did a solo in the middle. Katira says, "Lovely Christmas hymn." And there I am, Jewish boy, Jewish boy, Brooklyn, in Long Island. And I'm, I'm looking out three thousand. I turn and I'm looking as I'm singing. I'm looking. I've seen these generals, three star generals, and all these people looking. I and and I think this is like a movie. Yeah. So it it is like a movie. Can you tell us some of the kind of points of inflection, the breaks as? transitioning from the advertising where you sort of realize this is not for me and I'm going to do whatever I can to become an actor. And then actor. I became an actor. Yeah. And then I started writing commercials. Now, they would hire me. I would go in as an actor in the, in the booth just like this and we'd be going and he says, we, we, have, we have five seconds. Oh, now you got to realize 30 seconds is 30 seconds. It's not 30.5 seconds. It's 30 seconds. If anything, it's 29.5. So ah, we got too much coming. I said, okay, how about this? And then I'd start. Let's take this out. Let's do this. Let's remove this. Okay, instead of her doing that whole thing, how about that? And they go, good, 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 good. Next thing I know, they're hiring me, not because of my voice, because you can hear, I do not have the greatest voice on earth. But I knew how to massage it. I knew how to make characters. Because I would make them up from my past, whether it was Sergeant Gutierrez or this or that or my grandmother who lived across the street or... You mentioned um, all the accents in your neighborhood. All too. the accents. Yes, I can do, I can do the, 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 the Russian, the Russian accent, the, 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 or you can do a, a whole bunch of accents, Italian accents, but the, <laughs> the beauty hey, of funny. living there was the food. Oh, yeah. Every, sure. every floor you walked up, I loved being home, I ran away from camp when I was like nine <laughs> to, to get home? to go back to Brooklyn. <laughs> First, I was nine years old. They sent me and my brother to camp in the Catskills. We had no money. We were never poor, but we had no money. So they sent us to like this shithole camp. And I got there. I looked around. I said, this is not for me. All these kids are sleeping. It's cold. I'm not staying here. So I picked mm -hmm. up my fishing rod. I'm Walking back to Brooklyn, that's it. And I went through the woods. I'm in the middle of the woods now. It's like, like the <laughs> Vietnam uh, jungle trail. Were you with your brother? No. Just now you. they wake my brother up. Your, your, your brother's missing. Is he here? He goes, no. <laughs> He's missing. <laughs> He's missing. <laughs> He's not here. They call my parents. Uh, your son is missing. Now my parents are driving up. They're dragging the lake for him. That helped me a lot that summer. Oh, my God. They weren't too pleased. But a cop picked me up on, well, I was hitchhiking on the New York State Thruway upstate. He, he stops and goes, uh, excuse me, where, where are you going? Brooklyn. You going anywhere near Brooklyn? <laughs> what says, a ballsy thing you, to do for a nine-and-a-half-year-old Why don't you hop in here, pal? Come on. Come on. Then he took me back. That's so funny. I'm a homebody. Yeah. I'm you you are too. You're not going to tell us about the food that you like. Oh, the food. I'm sorry. Stuffed cabbage. Oh. Excellent. Knishes. Uh, Knishes, of course. Oh. Matzo meal and other and people's matzo food. Food Other too. people's food. You can't get any better than uh, Salambergio's mother's lasagna. It just doesn't get any better. It really doesn't. So now let's talk about okay. your life. So now you're working. You're doing commercials. Well, now I'm 73. You're getting paid. No, no, no. Oh, in, in, in my in past. Our, in our timeline here. Yes. And at $30 some point in time, a commercial. you get 
involved with a woman. You have a life. You get married. I've been married since the army. Oh, you were? Well, we didn't get to that part. So can we, you, I was married we, on Christmas Eve. You were married on Christmas Eve before you went away to Vietnam? Yeah. And then we went down to Georgia. We lived over- You were a baby. What were you, 22 when you got married? Yeah. And you got married, left her in New York. Yeah, she was 19. She was 19. I went back to the army. And then when Gutierrez says, come here, you go to go to communications thing- then she came down. I drove. I got on a bus. And then we drove back down. We lived over someone's garage in Augusta, Georgia, which was heaven because oh, we were young, still loved each other. Yeah. We were going through something that very few people go through. And it was, we never argued. We never fought. She worked at the Howard Johnson's on the freeway in uh, Georgia. She gained 14 pounds. <laughs> Plus, in those days, you didn't have cell phones. So when you went to Vietnam, she must have written you letters, right? We, she'd write me every day. So sweet. So sweet. And I, I hate to say I'm, I'm divorced now, but my fault, all of it, by the way, all, <laughs> we don't 102% my fault. You talk about some people now who are in the news losing themselves and becoming something else. And when I hit a, a portion, I, suddenly I was I was in Europe. I was making movies. I was a star. I wrote these. I am starring and I'm living in a villa. How do you not have an affair? How is it possible not to? And I did. And it was a terrible mm. thing. And, and I became someone else. Suddenly, suddenly I was, hey, I'm a little taller. Oh, I man. think I got some hair. Right? Is that hair growing in? Yeah, I think it may be. <laughs> and you start to think of yourself as another human being. Suddenly women don't think of you as short. And it changes you. And uh, it took me about 15 years to clean up the mess that I made. Did you have children with her? Two. And it took years of healing. And I did it. See, here's what I figured in life. You have three parts of life. You have making a mess. You make a mess. Then you have to either clean it up so that you can have the rest of your life as something pleasure and, and beautiful. Mm -hmm. Or you can make another mess, which is what a lot of people do. A lot of do. people do that. So they get divorced. The first thing they do is they find someone else. They have another marriage. They have stepchildren. They have all these other things without cleaning up the first mess. And all they did was change heads in reality. Yeah. And then uh, they lose everything. That's so I didn't want to lose my children. I never really got married again. Never really had a serious relationship ever again. It's very insightful that you were able to say, I, I did this. This is on me. All me. Did it take you some time to come to the place where you were able to say this was on me? Or did you spend time at that time going, you did this and you did that? Never did that. And I paid. Yeah. Someone said, did you have an easy divorce? I said, not. Well, she did. <laughs> <laughs> but I did. I felt responsible. And today, are you She's friends? married to the nicest guy. I would have married him. <laughs> Honestly, what a sweetie. And your children. Are, are, they adore him. I adore him. She adores him. Everybody's happier. Wow. That's really cool. There's no baggage. Ev no baggage. Mm -hmm. I did what I could. I made sure she wanted to go back to college. I paid for everything. I did bad. I was a bad boy. And now I can sleep at night. In all what's going on now and the public shaming of all these men and this life lesson you learned for yourself of having to heal and work through and taking responsibility. Doesn't what mean I thoughts? didn't fool around. I just didn't get married. <laughs> what's your Again. thoughts on whether things are going to change? 
Have you ever been in a place where people don't have enough to eat or drink? If you ever been in a place where people are fighting over what's called potable water, you realize that we just have too much to eat here. Now, when I mean too much, I mean we have an overabundance of everything. And sometimes you don't have to claw as much and you eat, you can get anything to eat at any time. And so different priorities come in. And sometimes those priorities are not nicest priorities. They're biological. And those, (laughs) you know, men are men. And basically, if they're not ruled with some kind of guiding hand, like Rebecca's children, who I've known for years and are just the best. Why? They had somebody on them all the time. (laughs) That's true. Right? (laughs) Where are you? What are you doing? When you don't have that voice in your head and suddenly you're thrown into, I have, you're giving me $20 million to be in a movie or you give me this or that to write a movie? You think you can do everything, anything. I've seen, I worked with Bill Cosby, 96 through 98. Again, it's no no different than anything else. When you think you own the world, you think you can do anything. And if you have women everywhere, beautiful women everywhere, sometimes people lose their minds. So will the public shaming, do you think, uh, where we're at right now, change <laughs> things? certainly would change me, I'll tell you. But uh, while we're talking, take a look at what Richard Gere did in India. Now, I don't think it was intentionally horrible or anything like that to, in his mind, but he felt absolutely okay to do it. What did he do? He, like, mauled an Indian actress in front of all these Indian reporters and stuff. Wow. <laughs> in India, where they're very, you know, hands off the women. Mm-hmm. Oh, he grabbed her, he grabbed her. And she was like, holy shit. Now, well, why would someone do that? I want to go back and talk about you. You have worked with some of the most amazing people that exist amazing. in the marketplace today. I'm going to just name a few. Don Rickles. Who, yes. Who's, Did two years with Don Rickles. I mean, unbelievable. That um, man was so funny. It was, and, and it's interesting. Two years with Don Rickles and two years with Bill Cosby. Now, again, I wasn't in the room with Bill Cosby. I never Cosby. thought I Bill Cosby know. was as funny as Don Rickles. You know, I mean, he's I, not. Yeah, he wasn't like a funny. He's not like a funny guy. In his old stand-up, when he would talk about his family and his brother and the dentist, but he he is Bill Cosby, not to go up too much on him, but again, I wasn't in the room. I don't know what's happening, but did he live on his own planet? You bet. He walked down Cosby Street, but that's not Don Rickles. Barbara Rickles was always around. (laughs) (laughs) And Don would never do that. He loved, he adored his wife adored his wife. That's fun. Well, it's good. Keep her around. That way you don't stray. And There's no misbehaving. No misbehaving. And every time we'd go to Vegas to see him, you bet Barbara was there. You bet. So you had Bill Cosby, Don Rickles. Don Rickles. And Don, Don Rickles taught me, uh, real quick, here's what Don Rickles taught me. Make sure you know everybody's name on that set. Make sure you know if they're married, they have kids, all those things. So when you walk on the set and you see the cameraman, Harry, and you, Don Rickles was great at it. Harry, how are you? He knew everybody's name. Harry, how are you? How's, how's your son? Is he okay? Oh, I'm glad, I'm glad, I'm glad. Harry would jump off a building for Don Rickles. Was that genuine? Yeah. Absolutely. Or, well, he did his research, it sounds like, too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And he had no trouble in attacking anyone, no matter what position they were in. 
I mean that. He would do it. And, I feel uh, badly asking this, but didn't he pass away this year? Yeah, he passed away about, I don't know, six months ago. He did, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I was fortunate enough to, to go to the uh, memorial and I was able to say some nice things. Um, Again, all the things, the funniness. The, he was the most naturally funny man. Naturally. Who else could get away with all that? Yeah, seriously. Oh my God. Yeah. He was fearless. Fearless. Yeah. Oh, let's just say, oh, there's the black guy over there. It's okay. And then he'd start on it and I'd think, oh my God. Yeah. But people knew he was coming from a loving heart, even though he was giving people. Loving heart, yes. But still, <laughs> some of the things, like he would always make sure, by the way, that when you went to Vegas, there was a guy at the uh, door and he made sure there was a black guy or black couple in the front, a Chinese couple, there's a heavy woman in the front. Because then he would go into his routine. Oh, hi, 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 what's your name? Is that the wife? <laughs> <laughs> you got a real bow wow there, pal. You got a real bow wow. And they laughed. And everyone and laughed. Was, and the couple everyone was laughing. Was, what, do you, what do you weigh, pal? What do you weigh? What do you weigh about? 280? So what do they? How do, how do you get on top of the wife? They like lower you with a crane or something? What do they do? Yeah. Great show prep. <laughs> so his his act was mean, but he was a very nice person. Yeah. Yeah. If you worked like with Don Chester. Rickles, you were okay. Yeah. I don't know if I want to be his agent, but he was great to all of us. He'd invite the whole cast. This is CPO Sharky, the, the show. Mm -hmm. He'd invite the whole cast. We'd all go up to Vegas. We'd be treated. He'd introduce us in the audience, and I thought, this is great. And my wife and I had a wonderful, we'd meet, we met Milton, we'd go to his parties. I remember I was standing there, I'm, 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 I'm having a conversation with Carol O'Connor, Bob Newhart, Dick Martin. I had all these, this conversation, and they're talking about buying Del Webb's place in Malibu, because Del Webb had died. And then we're going to sell the, the entire thing. He says, ashtrays and everything. So it's Carol O'Connor and Bob Newhart, all these rich people talking about buying this place together for family if they want to come, you know, like an extra house for everybody. Right. I said, I'm in. <laughs> and they just kind of turned and looked at me. <laughs> I said, I'm out. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I have Milton Berle and I got my mother. Thank God my mother was alive. I'd take her to these parties and Aww. she'd get dressed up. And I said, I said to my wife, I said, and these are the things that break my heart about my divorce, that we went through all this wonderful stuff together. So I say to, I said to my wife, I said, where, you see mom? You see mom? She says, oh, she's over there with Jack Klugman. <laughs> and I look and there's my mother feeding Jack Klugman. <laughs> like a four-year-old. Did you write on that show? No, I was just an actor. What, what was your first sort of transition into the writing? Well, I've always written and nobody would buy it. And I met this maniac, uh, Lauren Dreyfus, Richard's brother, and he had some deal. And I was in his movie, one of the worst movies ever made, called Skate Town USA. Listen to this cast. Ready? Blockbuster. Scott Baio. That's about it. No. no. Uh, <laughs> Scott Baio. Billy Barty. Oh, God. Oh, um, people didn't know he was fabulous at it, too. Patrick Swayze oh. was in it. Do you know Patrick Swayze was an incredible roller skater? And in a great dancer. Ballet. Mm -hmm. And a lovely guy, by yeah. the way. But it, it was a terrible movie. But he says, hey, maybe we can do some stuff. I said, oh, I acted in it. I said, oh, okay. And 
he got a meeting at Columbia for some reason, and we talked Larry White, who was the president, into giving us an office. And I started writing. And little things. I, think, I, I have an office yeah, on the lot. I, mean, it, it I turned, have an office on the lot. It, I got an office on the lot. It turned out great. I mean, you wrote for the Cosby Show. What is your process? I was writing movies first. My process can vary. Nobody does the same thing. Some people write for three hours a day, and that's it. Then they get up and they do what else they have, and the next day they write for three hours. Some people write for page count. So it's not about hours. I'm going to write 100 pages today. I'm going to write three pages today. If you write three pages <laughs> in a That's month, big, you have right? a script. Right. So when people say, oh, I've been working on it for two years. They're not working on it. And what was yours? Plow through. You wake up, have your coffee. By the way, when I had my daughter, I never smoked weed after the army. I never did anything until I quit show business, which was about 2000. It was a, must have been a little bit lonely, though, right? To sit in the room by yourself. That's what writing is. Yeah. Why do you think people say I have a writer's block? They have writer's block because they're not sitting in their office. Have you ever had a process where you had a writing partner? Yeah, Lauren. But it didn't work out because I do the writing. Mm -hmm. He was more of the, in writing teams, you'll always see somebody kind of talks and somebody sits. And What was your greatest writing experience? My play. Ah. Susan Sullivan. You know Susan Sullivan? She starred in my play, what uh, was the An name Act of, your of play? Love. An Act of Love? Yeah, it was over at Gary Marshall's Theater. It's being published. And a guy has a date with a woman who shows up in a full burqa. <laughs> and he says, uh, are you Muslim? And she says, no, I, I didn't think we'd get to religion this fast. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's pretty, That's funny. again, what it is, is a woman who says, if you want to see me, you're going to have to get to know me. That was the idea. I do things on my own. Mm -hmm. I don't like studios. Now, that's one of the reasons I'm not rich. Because <laughs> they pay. When you bend to them, I was making $50,000 an episode on Cosby and $50,000 an episode on Love Boat. That's a lot of money. Now, it's only 25 episodes, so it's a million bucks. Now, in today's world, a million bucks a year is really not that much. In those days, a million dollars, let's say. 10% goes to an agent. So now it's 900,000. And 5% goes to an attorney. Now it's 850,000. Then 50% goes to state and local taxes. Right. So you end up with two nickels. Oh, so, so now what do you got? Well, you got maybe $400,000. So I'm not saying $400,000 is bad. No, no. I understand what you're saying. But it doesn't last you the rest of your life. So if Bill Cosby walks in on a Thursday night and says, what are we doing on Monday? That's the read for the next show. Oh, we're doing the cowboy show. He says, what cowboy show? The cowboy show you wanted, Bill. I'm not doing a cowboy show. Who's going to be a cowboy? Well, you're going to be a cowboy, Bill. I'm not going to be a fucking cowboy. <laughs> I said, uh, it's going to be hard. He says, I'm not doing it. I, he, he says, write another show. He says, why should I be a cowboy? I said, because it's called Bill Becomes a Cowboy. He didn't do it. <laughs> so now Thursday night, he says... I want a different show. I want 12 Brazilian women come in and have a party in the house. And you have two days to write this and get it ready for the Monday read? You bet. And cast it and cancel the horses I ordered. <laughs> okay? That means getting your crew together and writing and writing and sitting there and keeping your ass in the chair. Someone said to me, oh, you're such a good writer. I said, I'll never be as good as writer as you, ever. I just can sit down longer than you. <laughs> now, you did write... High school dropouts. Detective school dropouts. Detective school dropouts. Yes. Tell us about that experience. I met Menachem Golan with my partner, Lauren, 
I don't know if you remember him from Canon Films. They did about, I don't know, 200 movies. Missing in Action 7, Superman 14, all those kind of movies. And we went in to meet him. And Menachem Golan, if anyone didn't know, looked like Jabba the Hutt. He looked like Harvey Weinstein, only with a sandwich on his chest, because everything he ate, half of it went on his chest. Disgusting. And he says, so why are you here? Why are you here? Why are you here? I said, well, we, we have this idea. We shot some stuff for him to see. He says, what is it? Put it on, put it on, put it on. He puts it on. It literally comes on for maybe three seconds. He says, turn that off. <laughs> I hate that. Jesus Christ, he hates it. <laughs> and he says, Dreyfus, Dreyfus. He looks at my partner and he says, is your brother Richard? And Lauren very proudly says, well, yes, it is. He says, I hate him. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm thinking, I hope this fucker <laughs> this validates. Uh, doesn't get much worse know. from that moment. Right? All I want to do is pay for my parking. And then he says, because I said, well, we're trying. He says, shut up. This is the movie. You go to Italy and you find somebody in Italy. That's the movie. <laughs> I said, what okay. movie? I said, what movie? <laughs> the movie you're doing. <laughs> we go to Italy? Why Italy? He says, I have a studio in Italy. Get out of my office. Just like that. And I, I, I turn, I look at my agent, he goes, Jimmy, get out of the fucking office. I, I said, what happened? And he says, I don't know, I think you got a movie. The next day, we get a phone call, come in, take pictures for your movie. I said, what my movie? movie. <laughs> they take pictures of us dressed up all different things, matadors, ballet dancers, all this thing, <laughs> detective school dropouts. You can see the, the poster they made. And uh, two days later, we were on a plane and we were heading for Italy. So your writing is mostly comedic, right? Yeah. Now, it has serious backbone. Like the original play that Rebecca saw was really, I mean, the Burke was part of it, but it was really about a guy who has a mother who he actually has to pay to just pretend that she loves him. Just make believe, okay? 24 hours. I'll give you a thousand bucks because she's out of work. So underpinning it is a, a reality, which is sometimes people just, they're just really hard to give strokes and kudos and stuff and it's a beautiful play it's a beautiful play. and by the way anybody wants to see it can go to dlandsberg.com that's my website <laughs> and look at an act of love you'll see the whole play because i shot it and again i paid for it i did it myself it was beautiful did it make any money susan sullivan was in it and all these wonderful oh, people didn't great. make any money someone said how'd you do i said i lost fourteen thousand dollars he says it's a hit <laughs> yeah totally right <laughs> yeah i just made my own movie a while ago you can see sex tax about the government worker who had to went into tax receivership and the irs the united states government for a moment in time owned a whorehouse and they had to fiduciary responsibility Run the business first, and if it doesn't work, then you sell it. But there's a fiduciary responsibility between the IRS and the taxpayer, which is, I'll try to get you as much money from this as I possibly can. So when he goes there, he doesn't sell it, he runs it. <laughs> is this based on a true story? Yeah. That's funny. So, and that's called Sex, sex tax. tax. And you can go to my website, you can, uh, it's on iTunes, but what am I going to make? I'd, I'd rather let people see it. Mm -hmm. But you have a one-man show now, yes. which is, please talk about it. Blind, deaf, and impotent. I've never been happier. <laughs> and it's true. At this point in my life, I am deaf. I have these two hearing aids. Without them, I'm the what guy. What? What? <laughs> what? 
You can't see them. It's amazing. <laughs> and they're, they're really <laughs> they're amazing. Really I mean, the medical side, so I'm a miracle of modern medicine. You are a miracle. Miracle. I mean, from, from, I've been when dead you had your heart, yeah. five, four, five times. We didn't even talk about your yeah. big heart attack, which was big. Well, that, yeah. That's part of blind, deaf, and impotent. I just got a pacemaker. Every year or so, something wrong goes with my heart. It's a heart attack or or an ablation because yeah, you've come close many times yeah. I mean, vietnam and you know yeah working i mean Heart seriously you've you had bet. a lot of things that have that other people may have succumbed to you haven't i <laughs> you are here today i never was scared and look at where i am yeah that's why i've never been happier now being deaf is one thing being blind because i was blind last year i had to have cornea transplants i was becoming like an old dog you know those dogs with the gray eyes? That was me. Yeah. I drove here for almost two years. I, I couldn't read. I so couldn't drive. Deaf. Deaf. Heart problems. And impotent. Impo well, and you impotent. can fix that the problem The impotent's today. the best part. <laughs> now, this is, the way I, this is the way I look at it, okay? <laughs> Blind, deaf, and impotent. Hi, would you like to come see my play? <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm deaf. <laughs> hey, David, That's would you so read funny. my script? Uh Blind, sorry. <laughs> David, would you like to take me to Hawaii and spend money on me? I don't think so. <laughs> I'm impotent. <laughs> That's the impotent part. <laughs> Saves me a lot of money. Uh, so you, it, again, it, you it, found humor in all of the tribulations that have come towards yeah, you. Yeah, again, I could be, I go, don't get me wrong, I go to dark places, but most of the time I'm incredibly, again, had a heart attack, and then they had to they had to open me up, and then they had to open me up again, and they then they cut me, and they did, did a bypass, and they did all these things, and you think to yourself, I can breathe, I could take a deep breath and not be in pain. There was a time in my life I would have given anything just for my next breath. That's all, anything. So when I do get a little weird or something, or I lose money in the stock market, which hasn't happened this year, thank God, except, except for AT&T. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you appreciate things that you can wake up in the morning, take a deep breath and not be in pain, that I can walk. Yeah. I was in a wheelchair. I, Are I you think, kidding me? No. Because you're so about, physically robust. You're like a I was the gymnastics. No, but you're, you're, you've regained yeah. all the vitality. It's amazing. Well, I'm going to faint when I leave okay. here. But other than that. Sorry. No, 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 you're right. That, that was the pacemaker. Mm. Pacemaker meant a lot to me. Yeah, it's incredible. I've known you for most you of those known experiences. Me a long time. You have bounced back at least a dozen times since I've known you. From Thank unbelievably you. horrible experiences. I remember <laughs> I sitting in your backyard with you one day around your beautiful jacuzzi and talking about these things, but you have never shown your darkness to, certainly not to me, I've never seen it in a setting at all. And you've been through it. You've had more health issues thrown at you than and, any single person I know. And children, children. Yeah. Oh, my stuff with my children. You've had a lot that, to deal yeah. with, and you still come back up and yeah. boom. That's like another clamp. thing. Again, the walking thing. When they were operating on my back, and this was maybe ten years ago, they were operating on my back. I couldn't walk. They had to take bone chips off of my spine and stuff. But I looked at the doctor before the operation. And I said, "Look, all I want is ten steps. Can I have ten steps?" And he thought. And he went. I said, "Worst case scenario, you fuck up." Can I have 10 steps? Because all I wanted was enough to go to the bathroom and get in my car. I would have been thrilled with that. 
Now, when you have those, that's why when I see, you know, great expectations, I always think it should be called no expectations. Mm-hmm. If you have great <laughs> expectations, you're bound to be disappointed. disappointed. So we understand you love to dance and go to dance club. How does that contribute to your life? And tell us a little bit about that, especially overcoming these, um, you know, the ability, not being able to walk and such. I had a dog. I love animals. And uh, my son has three dogs, the funniest dog, and two, and two daughters. <laughs> They're the funniest dogs. My, my daughter has animals. We had animals in Brooklyn. My mother was a doll. She was just this wonderful person. And we had canaries and parakeets and hamsters in this little apartment. <laughs> and they would fly. <laughs> the cages would always be open. My mother didn't care. <laughs> ah, and she'd hold her finger out and the bird would fly on her finger. And my father would just sit there and he'd read and drink his coffee. He adored my mom. My, I was very blessed. My parents loved each other so much. But they went through everything together. War, depression, all that stuff. Did I How, answer the question? I'm going to ask it again. Yeah, Jeremy, please. So I, that way, we understand you love to dance. Oh, yeah. And you love to go to dance clubs. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about okay, that. Okay, so I get this dog who I adored. This dog? Dog. Okay. And I had to walk every day. So I got this done because my heart had to walk, had to walk, had to walk. And I'm walking down by my house maybe four or five blocks, and there's this bar, and there's music coming from it. And my dog immediately made a little left, and we walked in the bar. And there's a band, guys in suits with ties and a, a, a singer, and she has a, a, a flower in her hair, and it was like walking into the big band. And there are people dancing, the way we danced in Brooklyn, right. together, swing dancing. And oh, that was so much I fun. came, I watched a couple of weeks. Now in dancing, you gotta understand, it's like, it's like sex. You gotta, you gotta do it alone for a while before you go out onto the floor. Okay, you don't want to just. Wow. You don't want to just go out. That's the first on this podcast. Yeah. And, I love that. I mean, let's face it. Let's face it. It's, it's one of those things you, you want to go. No, I'm pretty. No, I'm pretty sure I know what I'm doing. <laughs> That's uh, so funny. I know what this feels like. So, I practice. It is not about the steps. Everybody, listen to this. It is not about the steps. It is a metaphor. And the metaphor is, it's the only place left in America where a man must lead and a woman must follow. Or you can't do it. If a woman wants to just do what she wants, let her dance alone. And that's what happened. What happened, I believe, with dancing is in 1963, the Beatles came along and women said, don't tell me what to do. <laughs> That's so funny. Right? When they're 1963, stop it. Leave me alone. Leave me alone. And they'd start <laughs> dancing alone. This frug where you have to shake your ass and the stupid swim and, the, and all these terrible dances where men look like morons doing it. That's why you go to weddings and, yourself and you see some 70-year-old guy dancing like a moron, you know, with a... Whoever. Or they stand and they yeah, just kind of move stand, up and they, down they, like they that. They look stupid. Yeah. They feel stupid. But I go to a wedding. I put my hand out. Would you like to dance? And women don't, they, they, they're not, they, they go, really? I don't know how to dance. I said, you don't have to know how to dance. I do. Just follow me. Mm-hmm. Metaphor. <laughs> the safer you let a woman, make a woman feel, the more she'll do. That's true. That's so, true. If That's you, actually very profound, David. If you yeah. push a woman around on the dance floor, she does not like it. 
if you hold on to it. In dancing, a man doesn't hold on to a woman's hand. A woman holds on to a man's. Right. She has And you the, have your hand firmly in the small of her back. Here's what I do. I will dance with you. I'll let you know what I would like you to do. I'll try to make it fun for you. I'll try to make it easy for you. I'll give you as much freedom as you want, but you have to have it at the end of my arm. Like life. I'll try to make it interesting. I'll try to make it entertaining. I'll look around so you make sure you don't bang into anybody on the dance floor. That's what a lead does. It's more than just dancing. Wow. Yeah. It's a whole metaphor. I'm going to make you look beautiful. Mm. I'm going to spin mm -hmm. you. I'm going to twirl you. And it's a delight. I could so go profound. to a regular club and, you know, the, the, the stupid dance club, you know, like the, mm -hmm. that kind of dance club. And I could go there and look like a moron. Or I could go to a club like Clifton's downtown. Right. You go to Clifton's. I just have to dance with one woman. For the rest of the evening, women ask me to dance. I have recently in the last five years had to change it to it's the only place where someone has to lead. Right. And someone has to follow. Yes, because there's so much. There's so much yeah. difference now in people. I mean, two guys. I, go, I dance with some of the guys there. Yeah. I do. Great. That's beautiful. Yeah, that's and it's fun. You are a self-declared family man. You've mentioned that you're called Papa. Yeah, Papa. And that Papa is like the most important part you've gotten to play. Well, it certainly is my latest role. My, my three grandchildren, my three granddaughters, of course, grandchildren are like pets. <laughs> really, they're like pets. You don't expect anything from them. See, children, you have to go, don't do that. Take your hands out. What are you doing? Take your hands out of your nose. What are you doing? Go over there. But you don't do that with grandchildren. Hi, honey. Hi, sweetheart. Hi, Papa. Papa, can we do this? Sure we can. Now, there are times I, I talk very honestly with my grandchildren, and it's it's pretty funny. We went to the, uh, the mall. This is with my 12-year-old. And she says, oh, Papa, there's a jumpy here. Uh, can I go on the jumpy? I said, sure. So we go to the jumpy, and I said, she wants to go on the jumpy. The guy goes, $12. I went, $12? To do what? She says, well, $12, five minutes. <laughs> I looked at my granddaughter, and I went, no way. She goes, Papa, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> $12 for a jumpy for five minutes? Yeah. What a she business. She says, Papa, it's, 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 it's fun, and it's this, and it's only $12. Only $12? You've lost your mind. Are you out of your mind? I will do that. Have you <laughs> lost your mind? And she goes, but Grandpa, that's my wife's husband. Grandpa, Grandpa will. will let me do it. I said, well, then call him. Call Grandpa. See how he does it. Now they <laughs> laugh because they know that's Papa. But me. will they wear you down to get to a yes? No. No. I Good. can't. And they used to roll their eyes. Oh, yeah. Papa. Oh, Papa. But they call me. We do FaceTime all the time. Right. They call me almost every night. I get little texts. I love you, Papa. Aww. Oh, love that. What advice would you give someone listening that wants to be a writer, actor, director, or producer? What would you tell them from do all it. your... <laughs> <laughs> you want to be an actor? Acting is the easiest goddamn thing in the world. Just remember when you used to lie to your parents. That's acting. Where'd you go today? I was in school all day, Dad. I was. Oh, oh, oh. That's acting, isn't it? Isn't acting lying? That's all it is. And you go, you know, I have people sending their children to the Tisch school. Now, if you got money, fine. I don't give a shit. 
But if you're going to take a loan for $200,000 to send your kid to an acting class, you're a moron. A moron. You know how many people get jobs because they went to... Now, something different more than acting. If you go to a big film school, you're going to meet directors and producers who are the sons and daughters of directors and producers. Right. Fine. Is that the case? Fine. But uh, if you want to be an actor... Go in the go on there, go on Craigslist, do anything. I started out, I did anything. I did community theater, I did children's theater. I played Hector Projector. They put a big projector on me for a big projecting suit on me. Sixty pounds on my they rested on my head. And I had to dance and sing for kids on PBS. I'll come and look with me. <laughs> I'll show you things to see. And let you take a look at a book, 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 book. <laughs> Still know the song. (laughs) No, they paid me $75 a week. And I was grateful. Yeah. And where did I do? See, what happens is you meet people on your way. Now, you can jump to the top of a building, but I don't think you're going to make it. You can try. You can keep jumping up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. But you're not going to make it to the top of that building. Some will. But mostly, try to jump to the curb first. Then you can jump on something else. Then something else and something else right. and something else and something else. Good advice. Yeah. By the end, you may not be all the way at the top, but you're not going to be jumping up and down on the ground. You'll be somewhere. Of all the careers that you've had, which one did you like the most? Being on stage. Yeah. There's, this, there's a, a, another play called I Love You that I did with Robert Urich, Joanna Kearns, Remember Robert Urich? Oh, my beautiful yeah. Robert Urich. He died a little after that. But we did a play, and I was in it with Robert Urich. So if you want to see what I really enjoy, you can see that play. Again, on dlandsberg.com, <laughs> you can go and you can see. Just go on to theater. And there's all sorts of things you can see. You can see my movies. You can see the commercials I wrote. see the readings I've done, because I've done readings. Readings about being divorced. Readings about being in the Army. Readings about having children. One of the things that I have always admired about you is the longevity of your friendships. People who are lucky enough to be in your circle know you and love you. They stay in the circle. I have dear friends. I talk to my... I just saw a friend I went to college with. He was visiting his son, and I drove out, and I saw him and his wife. We had a wonderful time, and uh, still friends from the Army. I have a friend I was drafted with. He sat next to me on the bus. We went to Vietnam together, um, sat on the plane next to him, and on the way back, I'm getting on the plane, and I hear this voice, Landsberg! <laughs> and there he was, and we've still dear friends. Yeah, I mean, I may not see you for a few months, and when I see you, it's like I saw you yesterday. Yes. And you're always smiling. You're always joyous. I can't thank you enough for coming Are here today. Are you kidding me? It this was fantastic. Been so much fun. I, thank first you. of all, for everybody, it's lovely meeting you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Really. Next time, we'll meet Pamela Gagne. She's one of the few power brokers in Tinseltown who's not a movie star or producer. Pamela is the maitre d' and manager of the Grill on the Alley restaurant in Beverly Hills, a secret power player who wields her influence from the front of the restaurant. But this is not just any restaurant. For entertainment industry people and the top business elite in L.A., the Grill on the Alley is one of a handful of restaurants where the biggest deals go down, not to mention it's one of the most important places to be seen. Oh, you've never heard of a power lunch. Well, the grill practically invented that lunch, and Pamela runs the place. 
and reservations aren't that easy to come by unless, of course, Pamela knows your name. So join us when we rewind to the beginning with Pamela Gagne and find out what it takes to get you on the A-list on the next Say It Forward. Thanks for listening to Say It Forward. Help us grow by subscribing to our podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or at www.sayitforwardpodcast.com. Don't forget to rate and review us on the iTunes store or like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. 